0: Uh, Last week, we were looking at chapter 19 where Jesus was speaking about marriage and divorce, and of course those topics bring up a a number of things, Uh, the obvious things and also things that are pervasive in our culture, and and it's good for us to be reminded of these things and to allow the Word of God to get us back on track. Uh, Do do you find that... uh, the, the word of God is like an anchor, it's like a compass, if you will. It keeps us going straight forward to Christ. And this world has a wonderful way of causing us to want to deviate from that, from that old path. Jeremiah talks about the old path, the old paths. We don't need to find new paths, we need to stay on the old path. The old path, there is safety, and, and many have worn that trail, But it's also true, isn't it, that there are paths that are very well-worn, but they're very broad, and they lead to destruction. But for the saints of God, we are to be on that old path and stay close to him. And our culture is going to um, always be at variance against the word of God. It's going to always be in competition with your affection and with your understanding of things, and it will challenge you, won't it? The Word of God will always bring you back to center because everything around us is getting us off of the center. And who is the center? Jesus is the center. So we need to stay on him. So we're going to finish this, uh, and, and now everything changes here in this passage. We're going to look at verses 13 through 30. Let me just read it to you. And you can look on uh, with yourself. It says, Then little children were brought to him, and this was after Jesus had spoken about this idea of marriage and divorce and even speaking about celibacy. He says, Then little children brought, were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven." And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. And now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God? All things are possible. And then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left and followed you. We've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. A very challenging passage, wouldn't you agree? There is an old saying that says that uh, everyone has their price. Have you heard that? Everyone has their price. But for the believer in Christ, there ought not to be anything that we... There shouldn't be anything that we wouldn't be willing to give up or to give for Christ's sake. Unbelievers, they sell themselves very easily for transient, insignificant things, but this ought not to be for the believer in Jesus Christ. We ought to be willing to give or give up anything or anything for the Lord's sake. You remember that Esau was willing to give up his birthright. And his father was very wealthy. So to give up his birthright was giving up quite a lot. And for a bowl of soup, he, he, he shunned his birthright and gave it to Jacob. And even people today, young people are being killed in the streets for very expensive Nike shoes. Nike shoes, the new ones, you know, the several hundred dollar pair of shoes. People are being killed for these things, for transient, insignificant things. They'll give their life, and they'll, they'll take a life for them. But let me ask you this morning, as we, as we continue on into this, do you have a price? Is there something or someone that you would not part with? Notice I said something or someone that you would not part with, even at the expense of your soul, the disciples they were confounded by some of the things that Jesus said concerning marriage and divorce, and we looked at that last week, and now we're looking at now this whole attitude with money, and remember what they said when they heard Jesus speaking about marriage and divorce, they were very confused. in fact, in, in Matthew 19 verse 10 uh, one of the disciples said, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it's better not to marry. They were very high, high things, and they weren't easy to attain and to consider. And now, we've already looked at this, we've already read this this morning in verse 25, uh, concerning uh, the money and, and, and riches. And his disciples, they were greatly astonished when Jesus spoke concerning these things. It says, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And see, when attitudes of the heart come into contact with God's perfection, it seems to be an impossibility, doesn't it? When God's perfection comes into conflict with, our, with the attitudes of our heart, it, it, it does, it creates fireworks, and it's supposed to. It's supposed to. Every time I read the word of God, there ought to be something that's encouraging me and also something that is uh, pro, you know, provoking me to walk with the Lord closer and to give up certain things. And I always need to be willing to change. See, God never changes. He cannot change. He can't learn. But I'm the one who needs to change. You are the ones who need to change. We need to be willing to change. And every day of our life, Lord, you work and you chip away at this old block. And you whittle me into the thing that you want me to be. You are my creator. You're, the one, you're the, my savior. My life belongs to you. You make it what you want. I, I've, I've forfeited my right to my life, and Lord, you take it. And all this seems like an impossibility, but there's two words. But God. God but God. Two words that change everything. He's the one who does. This is why we need to be born again. This is why we need to walk with the Lord day by day, moment by moment, to abide in Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us, right? Only allowing those. Um, only then, actually, can these things be accomplished by the grace of God and his Spirit working in and through us. We cannot do it ourselves. I'm not capable of doing it myself. I need the Lord. Do you need the Lord? I need the Lord. And you know what? The world around us needs the Lord. They don't think they need anything. In fact, some people, because of their great wealth, they they say, well, I don't really need God. I've got everything I need. But you're missing the most important thing. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at the passage uh, that we're going to spend more time on than any. But first, let's look at verse 13. Notice, then little children were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, what an amazing amnesia! Because you'd think that the disciples would have remembered what was spoken of in chapter 18. Do you remember what we read just a couple of weeks ago in chapter 18? This is what Jesus said. He says, at the t- at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and says, who, "Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" What a wrong question to ask! Because we all know who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's Jesus. It's not me. It's not you. It's not any television evangelist. But then Jesus called a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as, notice, as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus is very concerned about the attitude and the heart of a child. A child will listen. A child will believe, won't they? You can tell a child anything as an adult, and they will believe you because you're an authority. You're the adult. And what a great responsibility that is, isn't it? To be an adult and to be around children. Our very lives, hopefully, will be, ambas- be like an ambassadorship to these young, young people, be an example to them. And that's a really tall bill, isn't it? Even the things that I speak, how am I encouraging, how am I, dis- how am I discouraging them? Am I encouraging them? And we want to be encouraging young people. They need all the, listen, they need everything that we can give them because the world and their enemy, Satan, hates them. He hates them. He hates you too, by the way. But I got some better news. Jesus loves you. <laughs> I don't care what the devil thinks about me. He hates me, and I don't really care for him either. But I know that God loves me, and I know that he loves you. And we can rest in that. You can take that to the bank. You can deposit that into your Cayman offshore account. That's where the real riches are, in heaven. Remember that as we going here. But Jesus, verse 14, says, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. God, you know, there are going to be children in heaven and and t- in order to um, to get to heaven, we need to have a child-likeness, we need to have an attitude like a child, vulnerable, believing, very simple faith, nothing complicated. You remember when you were little and your parents, you know, your dad may have lost his job or your mother lost her job and... And you had no idea, you didn't worry about food being put on the table. You didn't worry about clothes on your body. You didn't know, you weren't worried about, you weren't be able to get the, you know, the baseball mitt you know, for your, your baseball practice. You, you didn't worry about any of those things. You had not a care in the world. You believed by faith that you would be taken care of. And behold, you were. Some of us went through some skinny times and, and, and those things happened, but we've never gone without in the parallel account of this in Mark's Gospel in, in, in chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So childlikeness is a prerequisite, if you will. And he laid his hands on them and he departed from there. Now, as we get into verse 16, we get really into the topic this morning. And this is a, not an easy topic. And I, I share this with you. And uh, please understand that the Lord uh, is not looking for your money. He made it. <laughs> he made the gold that's in the earth. He made the all the resources that we can't even uh, comprehend. The oil and the natural gas in the earth, the fossil fuels that are supposed to fuel our planet. He made all that for that purpose. He made gold and silver. Do you know that one day he's going to pave New Jerusalem with gold? And it's not going to be the yellow stuff that we see, that I got a little band around my finger, this gold. You know why it's yellow? Because of the imperfections in in the metal. You heat this thing up and heat it and heat it and heat it and you keep heating it a billion times and guess what this becomes? clear as crystal. The very streets of the new Jerusalem are going to be paved with clear gold. No big deal. To God, it's no big deal. So he doesn't need our money, okay? So I preface that because this is going to sting a little bit for some. Maybe none of you But some, it's going to challenge, and it's supposed to, folks. It's supposed to challenge us. Because each one of us has things in our hearts. and, and, And maybe they are an idol, or maybe they're close to being an idol. Maybe there's something right on the edge of your affection that's just like, it doesn't take much to put it over into the idol category, if you follow me. So now behold, verse 16, one came to him and said, Good teacher, What good thing shall I do that I may have a eternal life? And a similar thing, remember, was asked by the multitudes in John chapter 6 while Jesus was in Galilee. Remember, they said, um, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. And really, that is the work of God. And that's what this young man needed to do to have eternal life. He needed to believe in Christ. And when you say you believe in Christ, it's a very pregnant phrase because that means that you believe everything that he said. And you believe everything that he did. And you hold to the things that he has yet to do because the Bible tells us these things. He hasn't lied to us. His track record's is 100%. But this is what you must do. And he said to him, verse 17, Why do you call me good? Jesus says to the rich young ruler. No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus knew that no other other than himself was perfect. And therefore, Jesus here is drawing this young man out. He's drawing him out. He's not just hitting him with facts and convicting him of his sin. He's he's drawing him out. And see, God, that's the way God works. He is very gentle. Even when we deserve to get blasted, even as believers or unbelievers, he's very gentle. Do you know this about our Savior? Do you know this about God? Do you know this about Christ? He is very gentle. And yes, there is a time when the hammer must fall, but he's very gentle. He's very kind. We, we don't even know kindness and love like the Savior's love for us. We don't, we don't always see it in the world, and sometimes I don't even demonstrate it through my own life to people around me, that agape love, but he has perfect love. He knows when the hammer needs to be dropped, and he knows when I need time. And I can be honest with you, I'm a, I'm a, a recipient of his wonderful grace. And, and I know that you know that too of yourself, but I know that. I really know that. Because I, of all people, I don't deserve anything that He has given. And I don't deserve the promises that He's made. I know what I deserve, and it's nothing good. But Jesus knew that there was no one perfect except for Himself. And although no one could keep the law, you know, it was intended to show us that we are sinful and that we ultimately can't keep the law. The law was there to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What does it tell us in Galatians? The scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, notice, kept for the faith which should afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. In the King James, it says it's our schoolmaster. To bring us. What was the purpose of the law? To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament is no longer necessary. No, but the law is supposed to bring conviction because none of us have kept the law. No, no, No one is perfect except for Christ. Therefore, everyone born from Eve until this present day has, has sinned. In fact, in John's epistle, what does it say? You know this well. If we say we have no sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, notice the plural there and the singular right before that, sin and sins. These two words mean something different. It says that if we confess our sins, if we, John is saying this of himself, remember that, he's writing and he's including himself, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sin in this first instance is singular, and it's used without the definite article. And why is that a big deal? Because it's pointing to the fact of our sin nature. It's referring to our sin nature, not our individual acts of sin. Do you follow me? Because we were born with a sin nature, right? So sins, in that, in, that cha- in that verse above, is referring to the individual acts of sin. I sin because I have a sin nature. And see, a lot of people think, well, I'm not a sinner. Well, you are already proved it because you're lying right now. Right? But don't believe me. <laughs> I'm a sin because I'm a sinner. Romans tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, listen to this, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was already in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So we we were given this sin nature from our parents. Yes, blame them. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Eve. It was after the fall that they gave birth. From that moment onward, we have been born in sin. And even David, King David knew this. In Psalm 51, that great repentant psalm of his, after his sin with Bathsheba, what did he say? Verse 5, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Do you see that? Even David, a thousand years before Christ, he knew this. In Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. And that sounds just like me. And I hate to say it, but just like you too. Right? That's what brought me to Christ. Psalm 14 is another one that puts the nail in the coffin of my pride. What does it tell us? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who actually seek God. And here's the answer. No, they've all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Boy, that just, aren't you glad you came this morning? I'm gonna go to church and and be lifted up and feel good about who I am. What a self-esteem boost to come to Calvary Chapel of Rochester. I feel so good, I feel so good. (laughs) Well, if I walked around feeling good all the time, I'd never be challenged. And we need it. We need to be challenged, don't we? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what Paul said. Verse 17, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And notice what he said. He said to him, the rich young ruler said to Jesus, well, which one? The religious Jews, you have to understand, by this time had cataloged over 614 laws that they held to, adding to those that God had already given them. And as soon as you begin to ask which ones, you're already being selective and unwittingly admitting that you're a sinner because you because you know you broke some but are hoping to get a pass from the Lord for the others. Which ones? Why did he say which ones? Because there were a lot of them. God only gave us, you know, a 10, and he even narrowed it down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. End of subject. But these guys, 614. Which ones? Some of them I don't do, but some I do. But which, can you prioritize the list? What are the top five? You know, give me the top five. And those I'll, you know, I'll make sure I do. (laughs) I love what James says. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Let me repeat that again. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, who said, do not murder... Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So it doesn't matter whether you've broken one or many, that one sin, unrepented of, will send you to hell. Yes, I said it. You don't hear that word in church much anymore. But yes. If Adam and Eve, if if God hadn't rescued the human race by sending Christ, we would all be condemned to hell. Thank God for Jesus. (laughs) That's why we praise him, right? That's why we give him thanks. Which ones, he said? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. So bearing false witness is lying, Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus didn't mention the one about uh, coveting your, his, you know, your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's things, but he kind of covers it all by saying, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So these six commandments... That Jesus gives from Exodus chapter 20, and they're reiterated for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5, are commandments that speak about a relationship with each other, right? With mankind, with each other. And we believe that when God gave to Moses those two tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, The very first tablet contained the first four commandments, and those first four commandments were speaking of our relationship with God. And the second tablet, the last six, were those commandments, like Jesus just mentioned here, speaking of those commandments about our relationship with one another. And in that order, do you notice? Our relationship with God and then our relationship with man. If your relationship with God is such where you're following those things... You're going to be in a much better place to follow the last six. If he has raptured your heart, you're going to love people too. And this is how Jesus, again, I already said it, could bring all the prophets and the, the, the law down to this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Don't you love how simple it can be? And yet, wouldn't you agree, it's very simple, and yet it's incredibly profound. I mean, you can you can unpack that and spend weeks talking about it. In fact, as we unpack these things, you're going to spend a lifetime. Until Christ returns for us or until death take you naturally, you're going to be unpacking this for the rest of your life. And people look at those two things, oh, that's just so simple. You, you Christians are so simple-minded. And yes, I am. It has to be Simple. For even a child to understand it. A child can understand those two commandments. Love God and love people. Okay. And there's a lot to that. Right? So the young man, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Notice that Jesus didn't correct him on this statement. I wonder why. Maybe because the young man was really telling him the truth. I don't really think he was, but I also think more likely Jesus wasn't going to debate with him but get to the real issue of what idol it was that was on his heart. The Lord wasn't going to mince words. Sometimes we mince words too much. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth and be content with walking away and not winning the debate. Listen, if you go in to deb- debate somebody and you don't feel like you've won the debate because they're intellectually going circles around you, hey, listen, don't worry about that. They did the same thing with Christ, although they couldn't go toe-to-toe with him. He put them right in their, in their place. But I don't have, I'm not perfect. And sometimes people can swim circles around me intellectually, but they cannot take what I know to be true. They can say whatever they want, but I'm going to tell them the truth. And they can you know, share all these, this treatise of how this and that, and I can just say, but God loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Oh, you are so pathetic, Christian. Ah, but it's the best thing that you've ever heard. But they didn't tell you that when you got your PhD at Yale or Harvard. And I've been in some really great schools, and they prepared me zip. But the word of God and the spirit of God has prepared me for everything else the most important things. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. This idea of perfect is not what you think. Being perfect is being mature, being of a, a full age. Maturity in faith and complete is the idea. Not perfect in the sense that God is perfect. And Jesus, um, and so... Uh, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and and then come and follow me. And I love in the parallel passage of this in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, uh, it says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You know, so often we think of Jesus just looking at somebody with this idol on their heart and just, you you know, looking at them. I knew it all along can't fool me, you hypocrite. Do you see Jesus doing it? No, what does it say? It says he agapeed him. He, agapeo is the word. He loved him. Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face? This is what the scripture can't tell us, but I wonder. Lord, replay the tape. I want to see the expression. How did you say that to him? What, what was the look on your face when you saw this very proud man with an idol on his heart and, and he looked on him and he loved him? Can you imagine the look of compassion and love? That's the stuff that we can't see in the scripture, but that's what the Bible says. He looked at him and he loved him. He wasn't being bitter and angry toward him. He wasn't scolding him, rebuking him sharply, shaming him in front of everybody. He didn't do that. And he said, One thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then the parallel passage in Marks, Mark 10, he says, Now come, take up the cross, and follow me. What is the cross but that instrument of death and shame? Take up that instrument of death and shame and follow me, and follow me. When Jesus was doing what he was doing here was showing the young man who his God really was and how he broke the very first commandment. He broke the very first commandment. So what is the first commandment? Exodus tells us Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the very first commandment. No other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, verse 14. Uh, There we go. Deuteronomy 6, verse 14 says, you shall have no other gods, uh, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. When we think of jealous, he's not jealous in the sense like a man would be jealous of his wife. Um, There's insecurity there. God is not insecure. He's jealous for you because he knows what's best for you and I. See, when I go after anything and anything else other than him, I'm, I'm setting myself up for the gravel in my mouth. It's never going to satisfy. The devil always tells me that, boy, you're going to get this reward. Boy, if you do this, you're going to be fulfilled you know, physically and mentally in whatever ways. You're going to be fulfilled and happy. And Oh, if you only get this one thing. I know it's on sale right now. If you get it now, it'll fulfill that thing. and It never does, does it? It never satisfies. And he's jealous for you in that way because he wants to give you the best. He knows, and isn't it true that the closer you follow Christ, the more you are obedient to him, there are blessings for obedience. And if nothing else, you are able to put your head on the pillow at night with no guilt, no remorse, no guilty conscience of the things that you said or did that day. Isn't that something? Even if that was all you had, that would be good enough for me, but it gets even better it gets much, much better. And so by saying, sell what you have and give to the poor and follow me, Jesus was exposing who this young man's God really was. And it was money and wealth. And the young man's God was exposed. And it was exposed based on his response. What did he do? He walked away sorrowfully. It was exposed. His wealth and all that it gave him meant more to him than eternal life. Can you imagine that? All of his possessions. Think about what you may have. And there's nothing wrong with possessions. But some people, that is their life. And they are unwilling if God asks them, what are you going to have? Everything in the world or me? Salvation, eternal life. I'm going to choose all this stuff over here. Well, enjoy it because you've only got maybe 70 or 80 years. And then, eternity. Our, our life here is almost like it never really happened at all. And yet, we can make decisions that affect our eternity. Think of how crazy that is. But wealth falsely gives us things, doesn't it? Wealth and, and gives us assurance or peace of mind sometimes. It gives us a sense of pride. And these are the negative things. And then it comforts the flesh, doesn't it? But what does the Bible tell us? It says, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a really good question for many people today. Many people have made the decision already. They may change their mind later on in life, and hopefully they do, because you can't take it with you. You can't take that Mercedes Benz. You can't take that house by the lake. You can't take whatever it is that is near and dear to you. You cannot take it with you. You know, the ancient Indians, when they would die, what they would do is they would bury their, their ancestors, or the people who died, bury them with things that they'll need in the afterlife. It's like, if I need these things in heaven, I don't need these things in heaven. Well, you might need them. You might need that car. We're going to bury you in your Cadillac. People have been buried in their Cadillac. It's going to rust in the ground. It's not going anywhere. But this does not mean that everyone who is a believer has to sell all that he has and give to the poor. Do you understand that? Jesus was challenging this man with something specific. For you, it may be something different. But most people are afraid of this idea, and I have to preface this because people get weird with money. They think that God is after their money. And contrary to what the health and wealth TV evangelists portray, God does not want your money. He doesn't. What he wants is your heart and your devotion. Like I said, he's going to pave the streets of the New Jerusalem with clear, refined gold that's so pure that it's clear as crystal. Remember that. My ring is yellow because it's impure. You heat that thing up a billion, billion times to an incredible heat, and it becomes more valuable because all the dross, everything that you see in here that's yellow, goes away. And what's left, nothing but pure gold. We've never seen it, but you're going to be walking on it. I like that. And hopefully one of us won't be getting out our jackknife and, you know. How did he get here? <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, Michael, could you come take Mr. Kellogg away? He doesn't get it. He's trying to get out of peace so he can hock it at the store or something. But there's a secret. We've already looked at this in Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This young man was not seeking the, the Lord first. He was seeking for himself. But here's the secret Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You may not have the the fancy house by the lake and all the nice cars, but you're going to have what you need. And isn't that really all we really need? All I need is a place to lay my head, food in my stomach, some clothes on my body. I can be content with that. I really can. The more stuff you own, you got to change the oil. You got to, you know, you know what I'm talking about, guys. As as we get closer to the winter, you know, you got to do all the stuff with your lawnmower and your, you know, your leaf blower and your, you know, your power sprayer. You got to change the oil. You got to make sure you got additive in there so a thing doesn't seize up over the winter. You got all this, all these more things. You got the more you got to worry about. There's something about a simple life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteous. All these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But let me say this, it is good for us to have a light touch on the things of this world. A light touch. What do I mean by that? That if the Lord was to ask us for whatever reason, for anything, we would be glad to either give it up, give it away, sell it, or if need be, even put it in the trash. Because here's the truth. Some things we possess, and other things possess us. Do you know that your belongings can possess you? They get you to do things. You've got to insure it. You've got to house it. You've got to put something over it. You've got you to gotta polish it. You've got you to gotta make sure nobody steals it. And don't let anybody touch it. <laughs> and if they do, make sure you go with your Windex and your little you know, paper towel. and Don't touch it. Don't look at it. But these are the things, if if there are things like that, these are the things that get in the way of our relationship with God. What about you? What about us? Is there anything in our lives that we've locked up somewhere? It's in a safe, it's in a hutch, it's under the bed, it's in the attic, it's on a shelf in a showcase with tungsten lighting, it's in a metal box hid behind the drywall or under the floor or in some offshore account. Is there anything that you would... Would you ever be willing to part with any of those things if the Lord asked you to? He may not ask you to. But if there are things, you're like, Lord, you cannot touch that. I will not allow it. That's mine. My own. My precious. Don't take it from us. You can edit that, Tom. <laughs> but be careful because that thing, whatever it is, may be an idol. Like this young man, he had an idol in his life. Pray about it. If it's close to being an idol, just because it might be doesn't mean God is going to have you get rid of it. He may have you keep it but change your heart concerning it. He also may have you sell it. He may ask you have you give it away or just burn it. Make sure you get a permit first. Or destroy it. He's not looking to ruin you or drain your life. He wants to bless you and your life. He wants your life to be flee. Uh, flee. He wants your life to be free of idolatry. He wants your life to be free of idolatry, right? He wants a blessing for you. How many of you want a blessing and, and to stay away from the consequences of sin? We all do. We all do. So let nothing or no one get between you and the Lord. Yes, it could even be a person. Some men have trophy wives. They don't really love them, but they're you know they have got this wife, or maybe ladies, you've got a husband, and he's the finest, handsome guy, you know, sort of like me. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm only joking. But a trophy wife or a trophy husband, that can be an idol. You can see it guys walking into a some fancy place, and they got their wife on their shoulder, you know, and they're walking she's got arm and You know, nobody's looking at him. Everybody's like, you know, she's all decked out to the nines. Everyone's looking at her. He's like, well, I feel good when I'm with her, but when I'm alone, I don't feel so good. And God's like, why can't you feel good by yourself? You're beautiful in my sight. Even if you don't look the part, even if you don't look handsome or pretty or lovely or any of those outward things, I love you and... I love you. I see you like nobody sees you. But the young man, verse 22, when he heard these things, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And this man made his decision. And I don't know of any other passage in the Bible that that says that he came around and repented and followed Jesus. He may have continued in his idolatry and died and went to hell. We don't know. But this is horrible. And this is how scary decisions are, aren't they? Don't you sometimes wish that you didn't have to make decisions? That God, you could just make the decision for me based on, and He's like, you know, just just abide in me and I'll I'll give you those answers. And because of my frailty, I may make a mistake here and there, and that's okay. We all make mistakes. He'll get you back on the path. That's not a big deal. Don't condemn yourself for making mistakes. Just keep moving and keep seeking him. Don't become a rock where moss starts to grow on you. Keep going. He can steer you when you're going. But decisions are really scary. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. While you're, looking, while you're going to 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm just going to give you some backstory here. This is speaking of a, a gentleman by the name of Naaman. He was a commander of the Syrian army and had come down with leprosy. And it was told him that there was a man of God, Elisha specifically, in Samaria that could heal him. And so he departed, this enemy of Israel, he departs with an entourage. And they departed and they took with them 10 uh, Talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing, clothing, a very wealthy purse they're bringing with them to give to Elisha. And God ultimately healed Naaman of his leprosy through Elisha by having him dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Remember that? And Elisha didn't even come out of his house. He just sent Gehazi and said, hey, Gehazi, just tell him to dip himself in the Jordan seven times and his leprosy will leave him. And Naaman's like, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I'm the commander of the Syrian army, and you're just, you won't even come out and greet me? You send a servant? And then dip in the Jordan seven times? I got rivers up north in Syria that are much cleaner than that. And then the people around him are like, hey, you would do it if he asked you to do something greater, wouldn't you? So you go, all right, fine, I'll do it. And he does, and he gets healed. And this is where things go south. Notice in verse 20. But Gehazi, remember he uh, Naaman brought all this wealth to Elisha to bless him. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman as he was leaving the area after he was healed. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. And then here he lies. He says, My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please, take two talents." And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags and with two changes of garments, and he handed them to two of his servants. Notice, he even gave them to the servants to carry for him. Don't even carry it yourself. We'll just give it to you. And they carried them on ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, stored them away in the house, and then he let the men go, and they departed. And of course, Elisha knew nothing of this, but the Lord told him. Now he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant didn't go anywhere. Big fat lie. Liar. Filthy, little liar. And he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the, when the men turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. And so he had his price, didn't he? Elisha didn't want anything to do with it. It wasn't about the money. God was using him powerfully. And it wouldn't have been wrong. Honestly, I think if if, if Elisha would have just Uh, you know, taking it, I don't think God would have had a problem with it because that wasn't Elisha's problem. But Gehazi lied to his master and then went after feigning to to have guests and, and they need those things when he really wanted it for himself. And so just like the rich young ruler, we see this Old Testament servant caught by the same bug. And really nothing has changed. People are not they haven't changed from the very beginning up until now. We are all the same. And we all, hopefully, none of us in this room have a price, but many people have a price. This man's price was that that bounty that Naaman had brought for him. It says in, in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of it, the lust for it, that I want it, I gotta have it. In order to do what I wanna do, I gotta have it, and I want more of it. I want more and more and more, and the more I have, the better. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And here we see Gehazi and also this rich young ruler doing the same thing. Being, they strayed away from the faith in their greediness and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There is so much sorrow with unrighteous stuff like that. Not money. Money is indifferent but how we deal with it, our attitude toward it. And what about Judas? He was the, one of the biggest ones. He was the one who carried the purse for the disciples. He, he carried the bag. He was literally the treasurer. And do you think Jesus knew that he was stealing from the bag, unbeknownst to everybody except Jesus? And yet Jesus allowed him to, 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 to be the treasurer for the group. And he knew that they were stealing, he was stealing from us. Scripture tells us that. And for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed God. Think of that. And then he, and the devil set him up, and he was so riddled with guilt that he ended up hanging himself. And then the, the branch or something broke, and then he fell headlong, and his innards gushed out on the, on the ground, the Bible tells us. Horrible way to go. So verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice that he said it's hard, but not impossible. It's hard because many, but not all who are rich are rich because they desired it. It's something they had to have. And some have even gotten it through ill means, and that's what it's speaking of, and our attitude toward it. But the Old Testament patriarchs, remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all very wealthy in their day, but they worked very hard, and they got it rightfully. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy, folks. If you're wealthy here this morning, don't feel condemned at all. But our attitude toward that wealth is everything. And God is not saying, you should give it all away. But if he does ask you to do something with it, are you willing? And that's the test. That's the thing that we have to be careful about. God doesn't have a problem with wealthy people. I've known some, uh, in, in my family, we, there, there's in Florida, there's, there's a, a family that we know pretty well. We've known them for many, many years. And they are beyond wealth. And they are the kindest, most generous people. They're not stuffy and starched. and they're, they're not e- They don't just throw stuff away. No, they're, they're smart, and, and they know when to give and when not to give, but, but they're very generous. And there are others that are so tight with everything. They're, they're billionaires, and they're so tight, they, they squeak when they walk. And their face looks like they've got lemons in them. Jesus said, and again I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man. And When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Because at this time, there was this general predominant thought that since God said that he was going to bless man, then physical wealth was proof of God's blessings. That's what people thought. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's why they were wealthy. That's why they had to maintain their riches because I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. Of course God has blessed me. Look at my goods. Look at the Lamborghini Diablo in the parking lot. Look at my holdings. Right? But that's not always the case. Sometimes God does bless in that way, and there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, with with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, the new birth, being born again, is a mystery, isn't it? And it cannot be obtained by any other means than by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't pay your way into it. This young man was saying, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I'll do anything. I'll even give some of my money to the synagogue. I'll build a new synagogue. If that would be, guys. wow, you are so generous. And God's like, keep your money. I, I want to find out what's on your heart. I'd rather have you than your money. I'd rather have you than all the money that you have. See, that's the truth of who God is. He'd much rather have you. I mean, we tithe and we give, and, and, and those things are healthy and normal and right, and there's nothing wrong with that. But our motive in giving, what is it? You know? Do we give because we're trying to you know, pay God back? Well, you can't pay him back. Everything I give to him is out of, out of a debt. But I, but, I, but I do it not to pay to even the scales. I do it because of how grateful I am. And I want to see his work continue. And unfortunately, sometimes money is necessary to keep things going. Not the most important thing. The Spirit of God is the most important thing because the Spirit of God can do more with no money than somebody with a lot of money who, you know. You have to be born into the family of God. You can't pay your way into it. And then Peter had answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed, therefore what shall we have? And I love this because Peter's heart and the heart of this rich young ruler were completely different. And Jesus knew this. Peter's motive in following Christ wasn't for the money at all. He wasn't money hungry. He wasn't hung up on his possessions at all. Jesus didn't see the idol in Peter's heart, but he did in the rich young ruler. There was no need for Jesus to rebuke Peter. Peter, for saying, what shall we have? We've left all and followed you. What shall we have? You know, on the outward, it sounds like he's being greedy, doesn't it? What shall we have? We've left all. And the Lord's like, no, Peter, your attitude, and your heart was right in it. Let me tell you what you're going to get. Let me tell you what you're going to get. Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, underline that word, because what that is speaking of is the millennial reign the thousand-year reign of Christ that is yet future to us. I surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the word regeneration is only used here and in Titus chapter three verse five. That's the only two times in the Bible in the New Testament. That this word, this specific word is used. But in this context, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven that the old Testament prophets had foretold. We call it the thousand year reign or the millennial reign. That's the when Christ comes back to the earth. Remember, just to review quickly here, once the church is removed, there's a tribulation period of seven years. When Christ comes back to the earth and his second coming to the earth, then begins his thousand year reign. It's that part. That is the part when he speaks about the regeneration. He's speaking about that and actually into the future where the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. There's a lot here. But it's speaking about this regeneration, this time. And what does it tell us in Isaiah? Let me just give you a taste of it here. This is so wonderful. This is speaking about this time of regeneration. The word that Isaiah, this is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So it's speaking about the times even future to us. In the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Meaning, the, the Jesus' temple that he builds. And, and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Um, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any war anymore." And it also, in other passages that I have listed here, it talks about this is the time when the wolf is going to lie down with the lion. It's going to be the time where things are going to be restored, where there's going to be a young child playing on the hole of a cobra's nest and not have to worry. The regeneration. He says, that's what you're going to get, guys. You're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what you're going to get. And so that, that's what this is right here. So we are right here. <laughs> the church age, this is a, a, on the day of Pentecost, the church age began and we're somewhere here at the end of the church age. It could end any moment. As soon as the rapture occurs, the church, end, church age is finished. And then the rapture and then this tribulation period that we've been talking about, that Revelation 6 through 19 talks about. And then Jesus coming back with us to the earth, establishing his thousand year reign this is the time of regeneration. This is the time that is spoken of. This thousand years. Let me read to you something. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Let me just read it to you. There's plenty of scriptures. We could, we could spend a whole service on just this topic, a couple actually, but let me just read something to you. This thousand-year reign is not something that the church has made up. You know this because you, I've been sharing it with you. Pastor Jeff, for years, has been telling, and I'm continuing to do it. Notice what it says now. Revelation chapter 20, and we're going we're gonna to finish up here pretty quickly here, so bear with me. After Christ comes... To physically to the earth in his second coming. It says, John records for us in Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, the abuso, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, what, for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Do you read that? But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then John goes on, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. What are these, the apostles? Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast. These are the tribulation saints, those who are killed during the tribulation, and they would not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years. It's all over. Are you looking forward to the thousand-year reign of Christ? Are you worried about the sun going dark? Are you worried about global warming? You don't got nothing to worry about because of this. A thousand years, folks. There's no mention of any of that stuff. Oh my God, the smog. <laughs> no, no mention of anything. God's like, I, I don't, I'm not worried about it. Everybody's all tight about it. I'm not, not even thought, it hadn't even occurred to me. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or life or, or, or wife uh, or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold, notice, and inherit eternal life. And uh, Mark in um, Luke's gospel clarifies and expounds on this, and I love this. And it says that who... Um, who shall not receive a hundred now in this time. So the idea is that no matter what you've done to serve Christ, you're gonna receive it now in this time and also in eternal life. Do you see the rewards are not just in heaven, but you're gonna receive rewards here too. So you're not gonna be giving up anything necessarily because when you, uh, missionaries who've gone off and they've left their, their wife for a season or whatever, what do they do? They, they inherit other you know not not wives in the sense of you know physical intimacy but they, they people who care for them and sons and brothers and fathers and people who are looking after them and houses they stay in other houses they don't have anything to worry about they don't have to worry about their food they don't have to worry about their clothing their shelter you're going to receive all that now and then in the age to come eternal life i love that but many who are first will be last and the last first and verse 30 here is a wonderful segue right into the next chapter. I'd encourage you to read it before next Sunday because it goes into detail and, and, and puts a little flush on this whole thing of, of that those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. Read chapter 20 because chapter, or verse 30 is just giving us the taste for it. But it doesn't matter how you come to the Lord and what position you come to the Lord. It doesn't matter what who you are when you come to the Lord. We are all laid bare at the throne of God. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he lovely? This is the God who loves you. I pray that you know that. I pray that this week you, like myself, you just examine those things in your life. Lord, are there any idols? Am I, am I like that rich young ruler? Are there things that I've got stored away somewhere that I don't want anybody to touch? In fact, it hasn't seen daylight for decades, but yet it's, it's an idol to me. It's so precious, I don't want anybody to see it. I don't even want no, nobody to know that I have it. So I'm going to hide it not let anybody see it. And God's like, why don't you just use the thing and enjoy it, and change your heart toward it? That'd be better. (laughs) Let's stand. Father, we just come before you this morning, and we're very thankful, Lord, for your grace on us, and your grace toward us. Thank you for loving us, Lord, and thank you for loving us enough to... Uh, even challenge us on things like this. And, and Lord, I don't know anybody's heart in this room. I'm having a hard time even understanding my own heart. Lord, you're the only one who knows my heart, and you know everyone's heart here. But Lord, in the privacy of our own conscience and our own heart, would you just work these things? Whatever it is that you need to work, God. But for. Remove any idol in us, anything, any person, anything that we have that's demanding more. (laughs) Lord, for what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Lord, I pray that we would give nothing, but we would give everything to you according to your will, your plan for our life. So Lord, thank you. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters. Lord, encourage them, protect them from the enemy's devices, protect them from condemnation, but rather fill them with joy. Fill them with joy and just your love and have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 God bless you.